0: Here we are in lesson 16 of the book of Romans. We are in chapter 6. And as I pointed out last week, Paul has switched the narrative from justification to sanctification. And I I thought about this week and, and I thought, you know, I think there's people who don't know the difference. I think there's people that really don't understand there's a difference between sanctified and justified. Sanctification and being justified. And the reason most don't know the difference is that both of those are given by grace. And they're spoken of by the grace of God. It's by the grace through faith in Messiah Yeshua that you're justified before God. Your sins are forgiven. And you're reunited with God after a long life of separation. Well, sanctification is also given through the grace of God. You see, the grace of God, I'm going to repeat it again, is simply stated for us in the Strong's Concordance. It's the word charis in the Greek, and it's the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in your life. It's by the grace of God that we are justified. In other words, God intervened in your life. He revealed to you your need for forgiveness and that forgiveness comes through the sacrifice the love and the sacrifice of Messiah Yeshua and when you accept Yeshua you receive justification on the day you accept Yeshua on the day you ask for Messiah's forgiveness God declared you righteous it was a gift we covered in the first five chapters Well, now Paul has switched gears. He's now speaking of a process in which we become holy vessels for God. You see, grace didn't end there with justification. Because that is not the only function of his grace. His grace didn't stop there, but he continues to intervene in your life. He continues, he goes on to keep you from sinning further. That intervention is reflected in your life. From that time on, everyone who sees you sees there's something different about you. You're going, you're being moved from the profane of this world to holy, to set apart by God. Look at the, diff- look at the word for justification. It says, to show, to exhibit, to declare, to pronounce, one, to be just, righteous. Righteous. The simplest way to understand it is that you are declared righteous. It's a declaration and a decision on the part of God. It's decided and it's done. A one-time act when you accept Yeshua, God declared your debt paid by Messiah Yeshua. Sanctification, however, is an ongoing process. Let's look at the Greek for that. It says to separate from profane things and dedicate to God to purify, to cleanse externally. You see, God declared your debt paid and declared you righteous. But the problem is and was, you're, we were still living in profanity. The world you live in, the world you interacted with, And participate in is profane. And so he set apart to separate you to himself. To sanctify you. To move you from the profane into the image of his son, the Holy One of God. It's a process. You are through the grace of God, or we could say his ongoing intervention in your life, are being sanctified. You're being made holy separated from the profane and the reason it says this process is reflected in your life you become something different from the world around you the longer you walk with Yeshua the longer he guides you the more you learn of him and listen to his righteous requirements and obey the more you stand out from the rest of the world Without the sanctification process, you'd be justified, but no one would see it or know it because you wouldn't look any different than anyone else in the world. And so we have... God, by His divine intervention in your life, justify you through the work of Messiah. Then we have God, by His divine influence in your life, change you from the habitual sinner that you used to be to a kingdom member living by kingdom principles. And those principles are taught in His Torah and lived out through the leading of the Spirit of God. And the problem arises when people think of justification and sanctification as the same thing they're not the same if they were paul would not have used two words in his letter he would have only used one or the other and we would not have these two separate sections in his letter the problem is when people apply one definition to both there's a problem and i want to look at this problem today first When we have someone apply the definition of sanctification in place of justification, what you end up with is legalism. You end up with people who are trying to earn their justification. They don't understand that God sending His Son has given them a position of right standing with God. So instead of God's gentle hand guiding them through life, They're looking to be justified. They're looking into rabbinics, to church dogma as a means of justification before God. They turn out being judgmental of themselves and more than that, judgmental of others. They walk around in condemnation of themselves and condemning others who aren't as observant as they are. And the problem is, Paul, as Paul will tell us in chapter 8, there is no condemnation in Messiah. But for them, what is important is everything they do and not everything Yeshua has already done. If you forget that you are declared justified by God, you're going to spend your life seeking that right standing. And that is not good news because you can't do it. For those people, remember Paul wrote this in chapter 3. Verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, the other side of that coin, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time here today. The other side of that coin are those who insert the definition for justified for the word sanctification. For them, once we accept Yeshua, we're justified, or again, declared righteous by God... But then, they think, we can never do any wrong again. There's no sanctifying because there's no more sin. Remember what sin was, given the definition in 1 John? Sin is transgression of the law. For them, the law does not apply. And so we could say there is no more law They say there is no more law in the life of a believer. If there is no more law in the life of a believer, there can be no more sin in the life of a believer. And so since sin is transgression of the law, we can no longer sin because the law itself has been set aside. And so you can never again be a sinner. No need to be sanctified because there is no holy. They are people people in the grace movement. It shouldn't even be called the grace movement. It should be called the justified movement. Some have taken this to the extreme and they walk around in what is termed now the hyper-grace movement. And these people, in essence, believe there's no process of sanctification. Being sanctified is... Actually, this process of, being, of separating yourself from the profane and living holy lives. What is holy is outlined in Scripture, in the Torah. And what is profane is outlined there as well. But if you're not under the law and you don't care about the law, there is no holy and there is no profane. Hyper Grace says God's Torah is no value in the life of a believer. One of their champions uh, is Joseph Prince, and I, I pulled a few quotes because I got a hold of his book, Destined to Reign. I'm going to read a few quotes out of this book, Destined to Reign. This is in chapter 7, page 75. You see, faith does not come by simply hearing the word of God because the word of God would encompass everything in the Bible, including the law of Moses. There is no impartation of faith when you hear the Ten Commandments preached. Faith only comes by hearing the word of Messiah. Only when Messiah is preached will faith be imparted. You see, I want to say for these people, or for at least Joseph Prince and his followers, the only words that can bring faith in the life of a believer are the words of Yeshua. The only thing that we need to pay attention to is the words of Yeshua. Problem is this. We spent two years going through the book of Matthew looking at Yeshua's word, and what did we find out? They were a teaching on Torah. His words were a further explanation of how to walk out Torah. And the fact is, Prince actually quotes here from chapter 10 of Romans, where it says, faith comes through hearing the words of Messiah. The problem is, if you put this Phrase back into the context of chapter 10, you'll find that Paul, in speaking those words, then turns and speaks and quotes Moses and Torah. Why? Because Messiah's words are Torah. They are the law. You see, this is a half-truth in that he's right, there is no impartation of faith in the Ten Commandments, But faith keeps you walking in those commandments. You have faith that Yeshua's words and the Father's words are one, just as Yeshua said, He and the Father are one. And you now walk in what you know pleases God because you have faith. And so you grow, as Paul said, from faith to faith because the righteous shall live by faith. But with Joseph Prince's attitude and belief, you have to. I had to wonder as I read some of this stuff how can he reconcile Yeshua's words in Matthew chapter 5? How can you say there is no impartation of faith when the Ten Commandments is read and only when Yeshua is preached when Yeshua preached the Ten Commandments? Yeshua said, the Father and I are one. Well, God spoke the Ten Commandments. And Yeshua says this of those ten in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so what does he say when verses like this clearly state that Yeshua didn't come to abolish the law? What does he say when Yeshua turns one Of the Ten Commandments from thou shalt not commit adultery to thou shalt not even look at another person with that in your heart? What does he say when Yeshua upholds the law or says something that goes against his hyper-grace teaching? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because this is what he says. Chapter 8, verse 92. Some of the words which Yeshua spoke in the four Gospels are part of the Old Covenant they were spoken before the cross as he had not yet died. The new covenant begins after the cross when the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost. In one breath, he says, only the preaching of Yeshua brings faith. Only the words of Yeshua can be trusted for they bring faith. And the next, he says, you don't have to listen to the words of Yeshua because they were spoken before the cross. And I'll speak about the new covenant starting at the cross in a moment. But first, imagine Paul plays a great role in this hyper-grace movement. I'm going to look at some of what Paul says. But before we do, listen to what Peter says about Paul. He says this in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you, With the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do other scriptures, to their own destruction. So what does Peter say about Paul's writings? He says that they are hard to understand, and the ignorant, those who are ignorant of the word will not understand the difficult words of Paul. And I want you to keep that in mind as we read what else Joseph Prince says. Again, in this book, Descent Terrain. Not everything that Yeshua said was spoken to the church. Paul's letters were written to the church and are thus for our benefit today. God raised him up to write the words of the ascended Jesus. This is why, when it comes to reading the Bible, I always encourage new believers in our church to begin with the letters of Paul. Many believers like to begin with the book of Revelation or Genesis without first getting a foundation in the gospel of grace through the reading of the letters of Paul. And so he takes these people who are ignorant of the rest of the word of God, just new believers, and he tells them, go right to the difficult words of Paul. What kind of sense does that make? And notice what else he says. The words of Yeshua are not trustworthy because they were part of the old covenant, not spoken to the church, which of course only started after Pentecost. But only the words of Paul are trustworthy because they are the words of the risen Yeshua. Well the problem is that Paul uses the very scriptures which Joseph counsels people his people not to read before they read Paul to make his points to prove what he has to say is true Paul says this about scripture second timothy chapter 3 he says And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for the salvation through faith in Messiah Yeshua. All Scripture is God-breathed that is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. It is through the words of Scripture, which I might add are the Torah and the prophets. That's what he's talking about at this time because there were no Gospels written down yet. Paul's letters had not been distributed. But here Paul tells us that scriptures equip us to do every good work. And the reason is simple. Both sin and good works or good deeds are contained within the Torah and the prophets. The point being that this position of hyper grace, that the law is not sustainable. Not if you read the whole of scripture. These people think they can never sin again. They say things like, To ask for forgiveness after you have accepted Yeshua is the sin of unbelief. Let me read one of his statements here, one more. Chapter 8, verse 92. Listen to this. I'm going to read it again. Some of the words which Yeshua spoke in the four Gospels are part of the old covenant. They were spoken before the cross and he had not died yet. The new covenant only begins after the cross. When the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost. He insinuates that the new covenant begins only after Pentecost. And that the church only begins after Pentecost. Well, the word church only begins in the New Testament. But the assembly that of Yeshua doesn't begin only with the New Testament. I won't even bother you by going into the Last Supper where he tells them to drink the new wine of the New Covenant before he hit the cross. But there's only one way to find out. Let's look at this New Covenant that we're in. Most people don't know what the New Covenant is. But Hebrews chapter 8 tells us, in quoting Jeremiah... It says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will man teach his neighbor or brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I want to look at this closely. Look closely what is said here. The new covenant, this covenant, this new covenant. And who is it addressed to? Well, it's addressed to Israel and Judah. And there's a good reason. Let me ask you this if you're not, from a, not part of the, Judah or Israel. Is it a new covenant for you? Huh? Not so much. It's a new covenant if you were from Israel and Judah, but if you're not, it's not a new covenant because it was new to them, not you. You weren't in covenant with God before that. So they got a new covenant. It's different from Sinai. But that's not what I want to get at. What is new about the covenant is what is important. Did the terms, the laws change? No, they didn't. The terms remain the same. Both the New and the Sinai Covenant have the same law. In that regard, the the same laws apply to both. What changes is the mediation. Because it says, no longer will man teach his neighbor. Because under the Sinai Covenant, men were the mediators of the covenant. It was Moses' job to mediate between the people and God. And then he passed that responsibility on to Joshua and Joshua on to someone else. The reason the new covenant is new is not because the Torah or the law changes. It remains the same. But now, under the new, Israel and Judah will know God. They'll hear from God. It will be God that is the mediator of this covenant with Israel. The law will be on their heart. And it will be on their heart by the grace of Of God, Yeshua, the word made flesh, will indwell their heart. And when you accept Yeshua, you're grafted into Israel and he'll indwell your heart too. That's exactly what the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9. It says, for this reason, Messiah is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The only thing that has changed is Messiah is now the mediator. He sits at the right hand of God and he indwells your heart as well. When you read, thou shalt not steal, and because of your sinful nature, you have thoughts about taking something that doesn't belong to you it's no longer some distant words that were spoken in the synagogue or in the church by another man that guide you because those words are easily dismissed and what happens is you steal. No, now it's Messiah who convicts you. He nags you, causes you to flee from sin. And if in the spur of the moment your flesh becomes your master and you steal, then it's Yeshua who convicts you of your sin and leads you to repentance to take back what you stole. That, my friend, is the process of sanctification. However, if you believe the hyper-grace teaching, the conviction that Yeshua brings to your heart becomes something to be ignored. Even to think that sin is not forgiven and that you have to repent is called the sin of unbelief. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, therefore, when you know and believe that Yeshua fulfilled completely the righteous requirements of the law, the devil cannot use the law to condemn you every time you fail. You see what he's saying? He, you see, for the grace of... People, it's not not Yeshua tugging at your heart telling you that you did wrong anymore. Now it's the devil trying to condemn you. You haven't upheld grace. You're not living by grace, but you have denied the divine influence tugging at your heart and given credit for that to the devil. The fact is, even according to him, even if I do a sermon on stealing or sexual immorality, I'm sinning. Listen to this. So when they preachers see sin and they preach more of the law, that, my friend, is like adding wood to the fire because the strength of sin is in the law. Sin is strengthened when more law is preached, but the power to have dominion over sin is imparted when more grace is preached. So here's the deal. What I want you to see is that Joseph Prince and those who preach this hyper grace, because I'm telling you it's widespread. I'm only using Prince today because I came in contact with his book, but I can tell you that this is widespread. But what I want you to see is they have effectively stripped their followers of the Bible, they made the Torah irrelevant. They made the Gospels and other Messianic writings that don't agree with their hyper-grace teaching irrelevant because only Paul's New Covenant teaches the New Covenant. Well, let me say this. If you let me take away from you the whole of Scripture, except for those parts I want you to read, I can make you believe that donkeys speak. And in fact, they're prophets, if you let me take the Word of God away from you. Now let me ask you something. Does this sound familiar? This has a familiar ring to it. Well, if you've been here long, if you've been through the people of God study, it should, because within 50 years after the last disciple John leaves this age, a fellow comes on the scene, and his name is Marcion. Let's read about this fellow from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Marcion is perhaps the best, best known for his treatment of Scripture. Though he rejected the Old Testament as the work of the creator God, he did not deny its efficacy for those who did not believe in Messiah. He rejects attempts to harmonize Jewish biblical traditions with Christian ones as impossible. He accepted as authentic all the Pauline letters and the gospel according to Luke after he had expurged them from Judaizing elements. You see, Marcion did the same thing as the hypergrace teachers are doing. Declaring the rest of the Bible void and only the writings of Paul as authentic New Covenant writings. Not only that, but just like Marcion did, they edited the writings of Yeshua to remove any elements of Torah or anything that would disagree with their hyper-grace teachings. Now, let's see what they thought about this fellow Marcion back in the second century. What did these folks who were as close to the first century teachings of John and the disciples say about what Marcion preached and teach? It says this. We read on in the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, For accepting and developing and propagating such ideas, Marcion was expelled from the church in 144 as a heretic, but the movement he headed became both widespread and powerful. Listen. The hyper-grace of Marcion was declared heretical... Just as it should be now. If you don't separate justification and sanctification, this is what you're going to get. And notice it says it was rejected by the church, but became powerful and widespread. And the reason is simple. What is the reason? You could go on sinning, you didn't have to change. What is the fruit of hyper-grace teaching? Well, it's used by those in the church who want to wink at gross sin. If you take the Torah away and those words of Yeshua and the disciples that contradict what you want them to say, then edit and twist the writings of Paul. You have a church where sexual immorality doesn't have to be repented for, but it's just accepted. For that matter, no sin has to be repented for because just as... Because just as justification replaces sanctification, grace replaces repentance. You no longer have to repent. Instead of grace being the intervention in your life by God, they preach that now you know Yeshua, He doesn't care what you do anymore. Yeshua's tugging at your heart becomes the devil condemning you. And I want to say, I think Joseph Prince is probably a nice fellow, he's a sincere fellow, but he's really confused. He makes statements like, I hate sin. I don't condone sin. But reading his book, it's obvious to me that he doesn't know what sin is. If he hates it and he doesn't condone it, he doesn't know what it is. How can you in one breath say you hate sin and the next say we shouldn't follow Torah? When the definition of sin is a violation of Torah. So I want you to understand why this separation of sanctification and justification is so important. You must understand they're two different things. But they're both given by the grace of God. And that's why Paul says things like chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or in verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. What is sin? Well, again, it's transgression of the law. And it is by God's grace that we died to sin. And how can we live in it any longer? We can't because... Of God's grace, we now live for him a life without sin. Before Yeshua, our sin nature, or what is termed our flesh, was our master. But now Yeshua is our master, and our old master, the flesh, has been put to death. And so he says this in verse 16 of chapter 6. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which is transgression of the law, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. It says that when you obey someone, you are slaves to the one you obey. And if you obey, if it's sin, you're slaves to your old nature, you're slaves to sin, which is transgression of the law. The flesh and the sin are your old master, and that leads to death. Or you can be a slave to obedience. And by default, obedience must mean obedience to the law. And Messiah is your new master. And he leads you to righteous behavior. Remember what James said of Abraham. He says, chapter 2 and verse 21, he says, You see, Abraham's faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. In short... He's saying Abraham believed God and his actions lined up with his beliefs and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, sin was not his master, but God was his master. Paul continues in verse 17 of chapter 6, he says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Listen, there is nothing new under the sun. Paul has just spent several chapters on justification, teaching that we're justified by faith in Messiah Yeshua because there were those who were teaching that you had to earn your justification. Now he's spending several chapters on sanctification because it's just as important it's important because he combated the same things we combat. For those in his days who didn't understand the difference between justification and sanctification. You understand that you are justified by grace. Let me tell you something. You will be unshakable in life. Let me tell you why. You know that Yeshua loved you and saved you while you were yet, at your, while you were yet totally offensive to God. He loved you and saved you while you were yet a habitual sinner. You know that while you were still a sinner and still separated from God, He heard your cry. He intervened in your life and brought you close to Him by sending His Son to pay your debt. And if you were like me, one day you were dying and the next day you were set free and healed and you were hearing from Him in your prayer closet. You're no longer separated from him. And you did nothing but accept the love he was waiting to shower upon you. And when you experience that love, which is real love, all you want to do from that day forward is whatever pleases him. And so you look into his word. You find out what pleases him and what doesn't please him. And you do what pleases him and keep from doing what doesn't please him. And let me say you don't do it because you're afraid that he'll forsake you. He's already seen you at your worst and he still loved you and justified you. After declaring you righteous, he drew near to you. You do it because you want to please the one who truly loved you. It's gratitude. The new genuine love that you have experienced begins you on a path of sanctification and it's by the grace of God, the divine influence of God on your daily walk through life. It aids you and gives you strength and the power to keep yourself from sin. It's gratitude and the grace of God that drives you into His Word, drives you into your your prayer closet. To change your life. To become like the one who died for you. You realize that he came and died for you. And you want to do whatever you can do for him. And guess what? You find out that all you can do is read his word. Listen to Messiah's voice and obey. Amen.